Hello. This is the Making Europe podcast to accompany the Making Europe book series. So, who did make Europe? This podcast may change your outlook on modern European history and how the European Union came to be. Each podcast in this series gives a new story that provides clues as to why the EU is potentially being unmade, giving insights to the challenges and debates facing the continent. Your interviewer is Geraldine Bloomfield. She will be interviewing the authors of the six editions to discover the alternative stories from the history of technology that shaped and influenced the Europe we know today. Hello, so today I'm here with three co-authors of Europe's Infrastructure Transition in the Making Europe series. Welcome to Arne Kaiser, Pierre Huxelis, both professors in the history of technology from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and Eric van der Flauten, Professor of History of Technology at Eindhoven University of Technology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So before we hear from you about your story, we're going to jump into it. The Pipeline. Lupmin is a tiny, unremarkable seaside resort in the northeasternmost corner of Germany. At first glance, it would seem an odd place for presidents, prime ministers and EU top officials to come together. Situated on the coast of the Baltic Sea, far away from Europe's political and economic centers, and struggling to survive as a resort, Lupmin enjoys none of the fame of the nearby holiday islands of Rügen and Usedom. Yet on Thursday, November 8, 2011, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, French Prime Minister François Fillon and EU Commissioner Günther Oettinger all arrived in Lupmin for a meeting considered to be of crucial importance, given that the political leaders were accompanied by 200 journalists and 500 other guests. The purpose of the meeting was to inaugurate the new Nord Stream Natural Gas Pipeline, designed for natural gas exports from Russia to Western Europe. Similar ceremonies have taken place over the decades, ever since Austria's first gas imports from the Soviet Union in 1968. It has become a well-established habit for political leaders to use the occasion of inauguration ceremonies to hail transnational infrastructure projects as symbols of peace and friendly cooperation across the continent. Nord Stream 1 was no exception. Medvedev argued that the pipeline opens a new page in our country's cooperation with the European Union, whereas Merkel emphasized that Nord Stream is the biggest energy infrastructure project of our time. Nord Stream was special, even compared to other Russian export pipelines. Instead of running through one or more Central European transit countries, it was installed on the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Diving into the Baltic from northwestern Russia, 
Lupmin was the place where the pipeline reached land again. EU land. President Medvedev emphasized that this circumstance implied that for the first time, Russian gas will reach countries of the EU directly. Buried in gravel and sand on the floor of the Baltic Sea, the pipeline is located outside the territorial waters of any third parties and remains beyond the reach of troublesome transit countries who could disrupt gas flow. Turning Neptune's domain into an infrastructural space was seen to enhance both the security and efficiency of Europe's gas supply. Yet following its launch in 2005, the project had been highly controversial. Interpreting it as an aggressive Russian and German foreign policy tool, Poland's foreign minister Radoslav Sikorski dubbed it the Molotov-Ribbentrop pipeline, and former Polish president Aleksander Kwasniewski named it a mine at the fundament of EU solidarity. Some thought that the pipeline was in reality one of Russia's hidden defense objects, a tool and an excuse for strengthening its military presence on the Baltic. The most controversial point in this context was the initial insistence from Nord Stream's side that a service platform would need to be erected off the Swedish island of Gotland. This component of the system was in the end abandoned following public protest. The pipeline was also questioned on environmental grounds. Although pipelines had already been laid in both the North Sea and the Mediterranean, no one knew the impact Nord Stream 1 would have on the Baltic Sea's particularly sensitive ecosystem and its unique brackish wildlife. In the Nordic countries, with their long and populated Baltic shorelines, it was this concern rather than military and national security issues that had dominated the debate. In the end, the pipeline was forged and Siberian natural gas flowed from Russia directly to Germany and onwards to other parts of Western Europe. In fact, gas companies deem it to be such a success that they are currently trying to scale up the system by adding an additional pipeline, Nord Stream 2, which follows the same route. With over a thousand companies involved from across 25 countries, it is sparking similar debates. With President Trump recently flying into the region to protest against the building of the twin Nord Stream 2, pipelines sure are big news. So, Pierre, what inspired you to write the book? What captured your imagination about this subject? For me, I think the starting point was, well, I, I saw this as an opportunity to uh, dig deeper into um, uh, something that has always uh, fascinated me, and that's the East-West divide in, in Europe. And um, that goes back to a personal experience I had uh, in... Uh, 1991 in, in August, I happened to be in uh, Moscow uh, precisely at the time when 
there was uh, the revolution there uh, leading to the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. So I was walking there among uh, the tanks and uh, Yeltsin was uh, proclaiming, you know, Russia's independence from, from the Soviet Union. Literally uh, part of the and history. So and that triggered my, well, uh, fascination. I was well, confused about what was happening. And ever since then, I have been uh, trying to read about this, write about this, uh, research uh, about this. And um, uh, when uh, we decided to uh, do the book series, I, I saw this as an opportunity to uh, dig deeper into this. So, Eric, what drove you to look into this research? Hmm. I think that there's also a personal background because I have a, a transnational family. So uh, I have kids in, living in Denmark, uh, for example. So my life kind of unfolds over several countries. So I'm very much interested and fascinated by transnational societies, uh, so to speak. So that, that would be the personal dimension. And then what really intellectually triggers me is uh, ironies of history. So so all kind of agents, historical agents, have been building transnational societies for a long time. And, and sometimes you get completely unexpected uh, backlashes. Uh, for example, you try to build a transnational society to erase, war, uh, to erase wars, but you get more violent wars for example. Uh, so this, the opposite happens in a way, and, and I think this is fascinating. So history is a very strange thing. Mm. Arna, what, what were your motivations and what ambitions did you have when you started the book? Well, m maybe it's easier to say what made me interested in infrastructure as such. Uh, I, I'm the oldest of the three, and... Uh, in the late 70s, I was an engineer and I uh, working with energy things and I, I became deeply involved in the anti-nuclear struggle in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And we and after the Three Mile Island accident in Sweden, there was a referendum. And uh, it was uh, I thought it was a fantastic experience to see how uh, suddenly broad broad uh, proportions of society started questioning the technocratic view of Can we society just backpedal a little bit to um so the referendum what was the referendum on the use okay, of so nuclear sorry, yeah, there, there was energy. a referendum about if sweden would continue to build nuclear power or not so there were very uh, well uh, so sweden had been de developing nuclear power for a very long time and um, and it seemed almost impossible to stop it but then there was a very broad popular uh, movement that questioned this and i think that was for the first time in sweden that that there was a really a broad pol uh, political discussion about what kind of future do we want and people started questioning the divisions of uh, technocrats and uh, well um, maybe it didn't change radically uh, after the referendum in a short thing but but still it uh, and uh, also in that struggle there were very many international connections so mm -hmm. uh, the, so you the, were part it, you were part of that struggle and yeah. you're building those international so, so relations that made me really also want to understand the power over uh, the power sector so to say, the political power and and, and that uh, and to understand that i realized i had to study history so, so that's how i came into the history of infrastructure uh, and i think this book well it's uh, now i'm 
precisely retired. So I think this is a kind of a, a much of a summary of uh, what I have done, and very and we have been working also previously, Per and Eric and I. So it's uh, so in, in that sense, it's it's really summarizing, synthesizing much of what we've been doing for the past twenty years in in research wise. So so I, I'm very happy about it. So. In terms of the pipeline being built between Russia and Germany um, and the um, impact of that, why is Europe so keen on Russian gas? Why did the pipeline come about when it can be used, as we've seen um, in more recent times and discussions, as, a, as an energy weapon well, maybe one can say that it's not Europe as such uh, which is keen on Russian gas. It's uh, different people in Europe, uh, actors, organizations, uh, companies, governments, so on, who are interested in this. And uh, uh, there are many reasons. I mean, most obviously, perhaps, natural gas is a very popular fuel uh, these days. It's, it's, a, it's a very convenient fuel. It's useful in, in, in many ways. Millions of people in Europe use uh, natural gas uh, for, 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 for cooking, for heating their water, for heating their houses, uh, and so on. Uh, and... Um, uh, the problem is that uh, there's not sufficient amounts of gas available in, well, uh, Western Europe itself, for example. So it has to be brought in from somewhere else. And, well, Russia happens to be one of those countries which has access to, uh, to, uh, to a lot of uh, natural gas. Okay. And also... Uh I think it's important to say that in, in the 70s, when this import started, natural gas was also seen as a fantastic environmental uh, fuel. Uh, today, we see it as a fossil fuel mm. and, and part of climate change. Well, it's but a, when it, a fossil fuel, but uh, it's uh, considered somewhere in between the kind of clean and dirty fuels. It's, uh, yeah, it's, and, it's and much it was, cleaner than uh, it was coal, used, It was much cleaner. So, I mean, it was uh, back then a low sulfur Yeah, low mm. sulfur. And so so to today, we talk about low carbon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think in a country like uh, the Netherlands, uh, you heated all houses with coal stoves, and that was really dirty. So when natural gas replaced it, uh, the, the interior of the house, it, it was a big, I mean, and that's easy to forget, because today we see natural gas as one of the fossil fuels. Yes, yeah. And in the context of the development of renewables in, in Europe as well, which is obviously growing um, yeah. to a great extent. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so um, what impact do you think the new pipeline that's being built? So we're still seeing the same contestan contestations happening, um, the influence of um, America in that. And we have Trump coming to Europe to oppose the building of the second pipeline. Um, how do you think that, plays out in international relations and what are your feelings about the US involvement in European energy exchanges? 
well, maybe it's not the first time in history no. that uh, <laughs> an American president uh, tries to intervene in uh, Europe's infrastructure transition, as we uh, call it in the title of our book. And uh, uh, curiously, American presidents have been very interested in the, in the pipeline construction uh, in Europe, especially uh, between East and West. Uh, uh, but... Um, uh, it's 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 nothing strange that uh, some people oppose a, a large scale project like this. It's uh, it's uh, it's quite normal, uh, and uh, uh, of course we can analyze this in uh, geopolitical terms. Also, uh, and the special thing with this uh, pipeline is that it's as we uh, told in the story that it's being led on the bottom of the Baltic Sea uh, rather than being routed through um, uh, other former Soviet uh, countries like uh, Ukraine and uh, Belarus. So um, uh, those who uh, oppose uh, this project, they argue uh, very much that, yeah, well, we could build a pipeline but maybe not uh, on the bottom on the bottom of the sea floor because it's considered in a way uh, bypassing some countries which would also like to have access to the gas or yeah. who would like to be there to influence uh, to uh, take yeah. transit fees and mm. so on yes yeah, so. mm. the, the nice thing is that it's at the same time an economic competition so there's an economic tie between, for example, Germany and Russia. Mm. But the US and Donald Trump, they would like to sell liquid natural gas, so the type of gas you ship in with tankers uh, to Europe. So he would like to sell their gas and make a good deal. And so that's, that's an economic competition. At the same time, it's a military technology. So Germany getting dependent on Russia while we have increasing tensions. And it's an environmental technology. Yeah? It's disturbing the environment, uh, but it's maybe also better than having gas than having oil in terms of climate change. So it, it's a very complex matter. And we'll see how this unfolds in the, in the coming years. But also, uh, uh, now, well, pipeline is a, is a gas thing. But if we look further back in history, in, uh, after the Second World War, there, uh, after, uh, well, there were efforts to rebuild Europe. And there were some actors that wanted to reconnect East and West. For example, there was uh, the UN Economic Commission for Europe, which was headed by a Swede, Gunnar Myrdal, for 10 years. And he, he very much strove to create uh, electricity networks, uh, European roads, you know, E1, E2, E3, E4, uh, railways, etc. So he saw that as a peace project. But then uh, on, on, the, well, on both sides, uh, in the East and the West, there were other actors, and in particular the US, who did not want this. So uh, most of the electric power grids were built uh, on each side of the what became the Iron Curtain and were not very much connected. But uh, I think looking at the 50s is interesting because, well, there were also fairly influential actors that wanted a connection and some that did not want it. And if you look at the gas pipeline, also, there was uh, Willy Brandt, the, ca the chancellor of Germany. He also saw this building a gas pipeline between uh, Soviet Union and Western Europe as a as a peace project. So, uh, I, so I think the reconstruction that, of Europe, yeah, and the relationships, uh, yeah. So, so uh, trying to uh, make 
countries dependent on each other and uh, thereby uh, fostering more of a well peaceful relations and the cooperation so, yeah. yeah it's a very old idea politicians yeah, very, are yeah. not very good at making peace because they serve their own country's interests and are responsible for starting many wars so many of these engineers and economists and other experts they thought well let's tie countries together materially yes. and economically mm. and, and we see keep that, the politicians yeah. out of the loop as far as possible and and build peaceful with societies in that way for example Willy Brandt I mean he So uh, not not all politicians are. No, but that was a general argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And we we see that argument throughout the Making Europe series with the um, mm. technical experts um, providing the infrastructures and the mapping to create the relationships and the multiple Europes that we've seen throughout the series. But even the Nord Stream pipeline uh, can also be regarded as a peace project uh, in a way. There are these wonderful photos from press conferences and inaugurations of, uh, pipes, uh, of, of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, where all the political leaders of Europe are coming together and hugging each other and uh, together smilingly. Symbol uh, of hope. Uh, and uh, yeah, exactly. And... and, uh, uh, and um, Uh, and I, I think that kind of picture, I mean, we might uh, joke at it, but but at the same time, it uh, tells us something important about the way infrastructures serve to, uh, to, to keep European countries uh, together in a way. Uh, I mean, remember that... Uh, There is a diplomatic crisis still in uh, Europe between between the EU and Russia, not uh, least uh, concerning the uh, crisis in Ukraine and uh, annexation of Crimea and uh, that um, uh, that political story. Uh, and in such a situation of very tense political relations, uh, infrastructures can uh, play a role serving. To well, uh, keep uh, uh, keep the rolls, uh, move, uh, keep the wheels uh, rolling, and uh, keep the f- flows of things. Uh, well, Germany would like the, the energy to come in still, and Russia would like to, the finances to come in, the payments yeah. for that. Yeah, you you jeopardize all that when you start a war. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a balance. Yeah. Okay. So can I ask each of you what your hopes for Europe and the um, infrastructure transitions that might happen in the future. What what are your hopes and thoughts on that? I think an interesting uh, irony uh, about writing this book is that the project started in a way when Europe was still a hype and uh, there was, we were getting ever more European Union and we wanted to, to have a critical sound showing that we have all the time uh, European integration, but also fragmentation. And if we look at energy, transport, food, financial, and yeah, there's always every motorway you build splits also communities. Or yeah, if you have a road motorway, you can't cross it. So it's a connection and, and a border at the same time. Um, so when we set out to do this project, we wanted to also be more critical towards the teleological EU story, ever more EU. But now we're, we're a couple of years later and the EU uh, sometimes seems to be falling apart. Yeah. So Fragmenting now it's and unraveling, of, yeah. Well, so we need to kind of, we're kind of struggling with how do we think about this fragmentation and integration dynamics in the current age of Brexit and perhaps Frexit and Grexit and all these kind of things. Well, what... Um 
We haven't talked about one aspect in our book, and that is that uh, infrastructures have also been extremely important for warfare. Uh, so s from 1870 and onwards, all, all major wars, uh, railways, telegraphs, etc., later on also uh, airplanes have been able to carry lots of soldiers, lots of weapons to the front and, and the, the scale of warfare has increased and the scale of killing has been increased tremendously. Uh, in eight, I think the war in 1870 between Franco, uh, France and Prussia had about 200,000 deaths. First World War, 8 million. Second World War, 40 million. So in the first half of the 19th of the 20th century, uh, 60 million people were killed in war. And after 1950, uh, infrastructure have also uh, made it possible to kill on a scale that is much, much bigger. So also nuclear uh, weapons uh, are tightly connected to very sophisticated uh, infrastructure that makes it possible to target very, very precise goals. So, uh, but... But actually, what is, well, the second half of the 20th century, there were less than one million people killed in wars in Europe. And, well, my big hope is that uh, this continues to be so. Mm -hmm. So uh, with the help of, well, with the help of, but through infrastructure and through, uh, through these tremendous, well, through these horrible weapons, uh, well, mankind has ability to kill on a scale never able before and I, well my biggest hope is that this does not occur well and another uh, issue is of course this we have more got more and more infrastructure but thereby we have fragmented the natural environment and so the habitat for all kinds of species has been really fragmented because you get roads uh, cities railroads uh, everywhere um So you see that we have this biodiversity crisis amongst um, other environmental crises. Um, the funny thing is that since the 1970s, uh, a number of experts have been thinking about, okay, when the natural environment gets fragmented, so, so um, how can we then increase biodiversity again? And one of the solutions was to reconnect the different patches of... Uh, of nature that remain by ecological corridors. So you start building ecological networks. So the infrastructure idea of connection is kind of Extending reborn to ecology, yeah. for, for trying, humans trying to save the, the natural environment, which is only partly successful. And there's a lot of opposition also uh, towards this, especially in Central Eastern Europe, yeah, where building the economy and getting new roads is more important than, than building ecological corridors. But also in the Netherlands or Norway, it's very contested um, and sometimes considered an urban hobby by people in the, on the countryside. So would you hope that but, that would grow? But the biodiversity yeah. crisis is a real crisis. Mm. Um, so, so history is full of ironies because what you see then, and I think the European Environmental Agency observed this, that uh, animals moved from what we call nature, so forest kind of landscapes that you might connect by these 20 meters corridors where you, where you have bushes, um, Animals and, and other species simply migrated to agricultural fields and even to cities. So you see the wildlife 
entering cities and, and living on garbage and, and in the sewers and, and stuff like that. Eh? You see half of Europe's uh, biodiversity, or maybe it was animals, now living in agricultural fields. Not in what we call nature, but in agricultural fields. So somehow also the natural world adapts while these humans try to build yes, uh, yeah. ecological networks for them. Okay. So for me, and there I think one funny thing is that, or well, paradoxical thing is that the former Iron Curtain has become uh, the longest green belt in in Europe. That's so a huge irony. Way, yeah, yeah and, and there, uh, because it, it, well, uh, f- for uh, 50 years there was nothing built there. And no people were there. So it was a fantastic habitat for, for animals. And it still is. So it has been kept as a green belt. That's I great. That's it, uh, <laughs> kind That's of great. A, okay, well, we'll, we'll end it there on um, that moment of hope. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. So that concludes this episode. To know more about the Making Europe book series, visit makingeurope.eu. To join the debate, find us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. The Making Europe podcast was initiated by Johan Schott, financed by the Foundation for the History of Technology, the Center for Global Challenges at Utrecht University, and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. The podcast is realized and produced by Sun City, Geraldine Bloomfield, and Susanne Lommers.